the jail we have now, while we think of it as perhaps like this kind of timeless institution of state violence, that it's always changing and that there are always going to be people in there who are uh, curbing or constraining the kind of the amount of state violence that happens there. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. An insurrection is underway in West Papua, a restive internal colony of Indonesia. Rioters in Sarong, a city of 200,000 people, built burning barricades and torched the local prison, allowing 258 prisoners to escape. Several guards were injured by rock-throwing prisoners. Only five prisoners have been recaptured so far. In local news, on August 15th, a statement was issued following repression regarding protests of white supremacist farmers' involvement in the local farmers' market. Some of their statement is as follows, quote, Yesterday, August 14th, the FBI targeted as many as 10 suspected anti-racist organizers in Bloomington, Indiana. This comes days after the second anniversary of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, in which white supremacists murdered Heather Heyer and injured many others. FBI agents went to the homes, workplaces, and families' homes of suspected anti-racist organizers throughout the day on Wednesday to question people about anti-racist organizing efforts. In at least one case, the Indiana University Police Department was directly complicit in the process. Though it may seem surprising to some that the FBI would target anti-racist efforts, we are not surprised. It is happening here in Bloomington and also in Virginia, where the FBI recently began knocking on the doors of people who are connected to Charlottesville as anti-racist protesters, according to the Virginia National Lawyers Guild. The presence of armed three percenters at the Bloomington Farmers Market seems to concern the city and federal government very little as the death toll wrought by racists, bigots, police, and fascists in recent shootings continues to grow. In July 2018, members of the white supremacist group Identity Europa plotted to burn down a synagogue in Carmel, Indiana. Last week, just days after the mass shooting in El Paso, another man showed up armed at a migrant center in the border city. It was impossible to tell whether the man mimicked an ICE agent or gunman that took the lives of 22 people a few days prior. Of course, the police only gave him a stern talking to and released him back onto the same street as the shelter, weapons and all. All this, and is the anti-racists who are under investigation as extremists. Across the country, people are getting organized to respond to the crisis of white supremacy, inextricably linked to the crisis of state violence, mass shootings, family separations and mass deportations, and climate change. And the FBI can only humiliate itself by once again focusing its resources on those of us who seek collective liberation. We stand with the countless others who will refuse cops, FBI, and ICE agents entry into our homes without a warrant signed by a judge. We will give cops and federal agents no more than our name by legal obligation and say, I refuse to answer any questions. I would like to see my lawyer, unquote. Critics of U.S. immigration policies have filed a comprehensive class action lawsuit, the first of its kind, against the Trump administration. 
The suit alleges that ICE is intentionally and systematically denying medical care, including mental health care, to some 55,000 migrants in custody at county jails and at 160 privately and publicly operated detention centers. According to a 200-page complaint released by Politico, detainees with medical and psychological health issues and disabled detainees are facing conditions so dire, including delays and denials of care, overuse of solitary confinement, and a dearth of accommodations for those with disabilities, that they've led to permanent harm and 24 deaths in the past two years. More migrants are being housed in remote facilities in the rural South, which already has health provider shortages. Detention centers rely to an exorbitant extent on providers with little training, such as licensed practical nurses. At some facilities, physicians are present for only about four hours per week, and registered nurses can be the most senior medical providers there. Capital punishment is on the decline in Indiana, as is the trend throughout most Midwest states. The number of capital prosecutors has fallen, and no Indiana juries have voted for death sentences since 2013. Since it enacted its death penalty law in 1973, Indiana has sentenced 99 defendants to death. In that time, the state has executed 20 people. Two wrongly convicted death row prisoners have been exonerated, and governors have commuted three others' sentences to life in prison without parole. 65 people, one sentenced to death, have been resentenced to life or less after reversal of their convictions or death sentences, or have died in prison. Currently, Indiana has eight people with a death sentence. The courts have overturned a ninth death sentence, and that person is waiting for a resentencing trial. Three death row prisoners have exhausted their appeals since 2016, but the state can't execute them because it's been unable to obtain the combination of three lethal drugs the state's execution protocol mandates. The following is a thank you letter and update from a hunger striker within the prison walls of Scotland Correctional. August 11, 2019. Revolutionary love. Comrade is more than a friend. It's a title given to one who struggles with you and makes sacrifices to assure their comrade knows they have a comrade. So thank you comrades, all of you, who took the time to shine a strobe light on the inhumane living conditions myself and others were subjected to. When unconscious prisoners see there are people who care about us, their morale and desire to join the struggle reach unforeseen heights. Love and solidarity was what motivated you all, and know we are grateful for the time and energy that was put in to let these miscreants know that we have people that love us despite our flaws. When outside support is shown, these miscreants think twice before they move on us. We knew there would be reprisals and I was the victim of them, but I gladly take them with pride, knowing that my fellow prisoner can enjoy exercise outside his cell five days a week and be offered a phone call every 90 days. Since the calls were made, Captain Henderson has been in the process of addressing her complaints. She let it be known that it wouldn't be done overnight, but the recreation was rectified immediately and we're still waiting to hear from her on the phone calls, which must be provided once every 90 days. They are obviously not complying with their own policies and procedures. This negligence on behalf of the prison staff is nothing new, and there's still a mile to walk, but with the support of y'all on the outside, we don't have to walk the mile alone. Fellow comrade hunger striker, held captive by the state at Scotland Correctional Institution. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders is proposing major, comprehensive changes to the criminal justice system. The proposal's goals are to decrease the nation's incarcerated population by half, stop mandatory minimum sentencing, ban private prisons, and legalize marijuana. It would also abolish the federal death penalty. Sanders says the current system unjustly treats people of color, 
people with addiction problems, and the mentally ill. According to Sanders, the system is, quote, racist and disproportionately affecting the African-American and Latinx communities and needs fundamental change, unquote. He also pointed out that the present system imprisons millions of people, destroying their lives. To cut the prison population in half, Sanders would reinstate the parole program, end the three strikes law, and extend the use of alternative sentencing to include community supervision and halfway houses. He also said that the two million mentally ill people incarcerated annually should have had their illnesses treated as health, not criminal, matters. Up next, we share a conversation between Melanie D. Newport and Anne Gray Fisher. Melanie D. Newport is an assistant professor of U.S. history at the University of Connecticut, Hartford. Her work explores the criminal justice system in the United States since the 1950s. Melanie is currently writing a history of Cook County Jail in Chicago called Community of the Condemned, Chicago and the Transformation of the American Jail. Community of the Condemned focuses on how incarcerated people and their allies resisted and fought the transformation of American jails in the post-war era. Melanie has taught at Garden State Youth Correctional Facility in New Jersey, and she is trained with the Inside Out Prison Education Exchange. Anne Gray Fisher is the interviewer, and she teaches history at the University of Texas, Dallas. Here they are. Initially, I started my study looking at a lot of jails, uh, but what I found when I looked at Cook County in particular, which is the county jail that operates in Chicago and was variously, at one point there were two jails, a city jail and a county jail, but now it's all the Cook County Department of Corrections, was uh, that it was the largest single site jail in America and governed by a sheriff, as most jails are. Uh, but what really struck me about the story and why I had to go all in with this case study was the stories that I found about the people who were incarcerated there, the people in the community who tried to intervene on their behalf, and the people who worked there and administered the jail. So I was really drawn in by these people and really had to know everything I could about them. Some of the questions that I'm trying to deal with, when I first started, I just wanted to know like how the jail got so big. Right. How do you get to a point by the late 90s, early 2000s, where uh, you can incarcerate over 100,000 people a year? But as I continued working on it, I really wanted to know much more about the kind of rationales and logics for the different ways that the space was used, uh, the different kind of strategies people used to intervene and check harms within the institution. And really dealing with this question, why is this city and this county so committed to having a large jail? How do they justify it? So that was a big part of the story for me. Particularly in the 1950s, when my story really starts, a lot of these people who were involved were very interested in ideas of rehabilitating people who were incarcerated, even though jails are primarily oriented toward incarcerating people who are pre-trial or presumed innocent or perhaps serving very short sentences for misdemeanor crimes. Uh, one of the ways that this 1950s sheriff, Joseph Lohman, talked about it was as a community of the condemned. And so they were really uh, imagining the people who came in the jail as part of this uh, kind of alienated group of citizens 
who needed to be taught how to be uh, law-abiding individuals and to be kind of changed by their experience of jailing. Um, so this really, I think, becomes a big, you know, kind of foundation in terms of why do we call it eventually the Cook County Department of Corrections, even when it's primarily oriented toward the innocent or people mm. presumed innocent. Another kind of way that they rationalized it over time was as a means of crime prevention and really containing kind of potentially explosive elements of society. So in particular, after the riots that followed the assassination of Martin Luther King, there are several thousand young African Americans who are uh, kept in the jail for several days. And initially, like, the community kind of, it takes them a minute to mobilize and to kind of, real, like, get their bearings around this, that these these young people have been essentially sent there to cool off. And then black pastors become really interested in trying to, to find ways to bail these young people out because there's this question of like, well, are they, are they really criminals? But there is this concern, particularly by the police, that they could burn down part of Chicago. So they're, they're going to be kind of engaging in these rationales. Uh, by the 90s, there's purely a sense that this is the only way to address crime is that you know as a kind of direct pipeline from the streets through the war on drugs people should be arrested and then sent to jail so there's a police chief in the early 90s Leroy Martin who says like we're generating arrests out of our eyeballs we need a place with some bars and some walls we need to call it a jail and so kind of not even questioning that the jail might do anything for people, but that, that the space itself is enough to kind of justify its use. Hmm. Earliest data that I have on the jail is that from like 1877, the sheriff's statistical report. And to give you a sense of the flavor of this document, it was printed in English and in German, <laughs> right? So this is really a document for immigrant Chicago, right? The kind of Chicago that I think of as the kind of the hub for the Midwest and the kind of gateway to the hinterlands. So that was a very, you know, many kind of what we would consider white immigrants are going to be making up the jail population. Only at that time there was like 5% were black, but right, that's immediately following the Civil War. So there weren't necessarily that many African Americans in Chicago. This shifts pretty significantly over time. So by the 1960s, the typical prisoner would have been a working person who had probably been to jail before um, in their early 20s, they would have been from Chicago, um, and a much larger percentage of African Americans. So I think by that time it was about, the jail was about 50 to 60 percent African American, even though the city's population was about 15 percent African American. By the end of the late, of the 60s and uh, the early 70s, the proportion of black prisoners in uh, the jail shoots up to 90 to 95%. Um, and that comes back down in the 1980s, I think to about where it is today. 
that the proportion is like 5 to 10% white, 70, 75% black, and then the rest kind of Latino or Hispanic. Um, and it's a tricky kind of demographic question because like the kind of descriptors that we might use to describe Latino inmates or Chicano inmates like is just not going to be there in the records in the 1950s or something. So we're not entirely sure. But, um, you know, generally in the post-war period, this is a jail for people of color. And that sense is really used to rationalize its expansion in the 1970s, which is a period that I'm very interested in uh, because the notion that it's a black jail uh, suggests to the public the kind of branding of it as a black jail uh, is part of rationales for violence and intense construction projects of new jail beds during that period. Jail is a unique space because people are cycling through so quickly. There's so much turnover, which means you know uniquely difficult conditions in which people can mobilize and organize. So, what kinds of activisms have you seen? happening in Cook County Jail. Yeah, so initially, right, this was a really challenging aspect of the story for me to draw out, but I think there are a couple of ways this has played out. So in the 1950s, there was a prisoner newspaper, um, and for me, that's really one of the best windows I have into how incarcerated people understood themselves and what was happening to them in jail, uh, particularly because that was during a period where people were serving slightly longer sentences. Um, and so they were really um, coming up with these ideas of themselves as kind of forgotten men, uh, as people whose society had neglected and that that was part of their kind of collective struggle in jail. They were indignant sometimes about the kind of opportunities that they had because they were like, if you would just give me a paintbrush, I would gladly repaint the cell block. Um, they were eager to work, they were bored, they were homesick. Right, so I can kind of see the ways in which it's not a riot or a rebellion in that way, but just resisting the kind of ideas about who they were that were being imposed on them by the people who jailed them. In the 1960s, hunger strikes and food fights became uh, a really important mechanism, um, in part because I'm finding that the food in the jail was making people sick. It was oily, it was not very nutritious, you know, sometimes people were served hot dogs every meal for three days in a row, right? This can, um, you know, if you don't know when you're getting out, if you don't know when your trial date is, um, if you're waiting for your brother to go scrape up some bail to get you out, right? These can be uh, small things maybe in our eyes that are actually take on this kind of outsized significance because people have, they have nothing else in these circumstances. So that's something that I see in the 1960s are these kind of volatile contests that at least as far as they're reported in the newspaper tend to be centered on food but also kind of broader frustrations with the conditions of the jail with the bed bugs with the shortages of towels you know the the difficulty that people faced in keeping themselves in their spaces clean uh, so these very kind of uh, desperate attempts to press the jail to recognize their humanity. Um, and then from the 70s forward, right, with the kind of rise of class action suits, you know, and not so much that prisoners find a voice in the courts, because again, we have people turning over so quickly in the jail, but because Cook County Jail was under federal oversight for 40 years, they had observers coming into the jail 
And so the prisoners would find opportunities to kind of testify to them, to let them know, you know, what what they were really experiencing in contrast to what the administration was saying. Um, and that happened not just through those kind of court oversights, but really to any <laughs> any observer who came into the jail. You know, you can say, oh, they were under federal oversight for 40 years. Maybe that wasn't all that effective. But in reality, um, what pe- what these observers saw in the jail often helped to generate other lawsuits. So, for example, a doctor who visited the jail in the, the early 1970s uh, saw that mentally ill people were being shackled to their beds uh, in the jail basement. They didn't have any kind of facility in the hospital for them. Uh, they were being... Uh, just horrifically mistreated. And he understood that a lawsuit might take too long. And so kind of in collaboration with the ACLU, it was leaked to the press what he had seen. So they they did file a lawsuit, but ultimately tried to use what they saw as a kind of way to create public pressure for not chaining people to beds, for actually getting full-time psychiatrists uh, on staff. And so there are these kind of ways in which um, incarcerated people's voices are really central, but also people who see what's going on use that platform to, to get the word out about what's going on inside. So one of the the things I found as I've tried to look at more of the experiences around gender and sexuality, particularly in the women's facility in the 1970s, there was a program through the American Friends Service Committee called the Mothers in Prison Program. And they were trying to address the problem that women in jail didn't know where their kids were. Their kids might be in the foster care system. They didn't know how their kids were doing, if they were staying with family while they were incarcerated. So in part, what the these social workers or volunteers that were working for the program would do was just make these phone calls mm-hmm. to, to try and get women news on their kids and to, to help them in situations where they couldn't, couldn't access their kids. And so one uh, story that comes out of that program is that uh, there was a woman with a newborn baby who had been really sick and had somehow gotten arrested and the Mothers in Prison program was able to contact a friend of hers and help help the friend kind of gather up half of the bail. And then the other half of her bail, um, because they wanted her to be with her baby, came from the women that she was incarcerated with. They donated their own commissary money to get her out of jail. And so I thought that was really profound in terms of uh, how these women were supporting each other how they were seeing her not as a prisoner, but as a mother, as someone who was needed outside the jail. Um, And I think it tells us also a lot about how they might have seen themselves Mm -hmm. as human beings who could be helpful and who would want that for themselves. And so it's it's a really tiny passing kind of antidote in a story about this program. But to me, I think it tells you what we know, which is that people who are incarcerated, this is just one one part of their lives. This is not who they are. Um, And so there are these kind of everyday moments where they're supporting each other in these places because 
it's a it's a radically dehumanizing experience to be in jail during this during this period and arguably overall of time. What are your thoughts on the exponential growth and the expansion of the capacity at Cook County Jail? And what visions do you have for checking that growth or challenging its impact today? Sure. So, um, I mean, I think the thing that surprised me the most um, is how (laughs) willing uh, ultimately politicians were to put the people that they served in cages, right? And that they were willing to dedicate a large swath of land in the west side of Chicago to to this project. And that this is not something we can take for granted because there were people along the way who challenged the size of the jail, that challenged the mission of buildings that were proposed, uh, people who challenged, uh, even as the jail was growing, what was going on inside, and again, were involved. Uh, in these efforts to try and ensure, for example, that guards were better trained, uh, that it was a a safer place to work and a safer place to be incarcerated. So again, I'm I'm so interested in how people, uh, the jail we have now, while we think of it as perhaps like this kind of timeless institution of state violence, that it's always changing and that there are always going to be people in there who are uh, curbing or constraining the kind of the amount of state violence that happens there, because I think that can be empowering to us uh, as as we think about what can we do to change the conditions of incarceration in our own communities. And this, I think, the idea that that's so important to me is really due to organizers in Chicago. I've been so lucky to be kind of mentored by people who are on the ground doing the work right now of trying to get people free. Um, So one organization I really admire is the Chicago Community Bond Fund, which collects money to bail people out of jail, involves in kind of other forms of legal support for people who are incarcerated, and has also really challenged the kind of assumptions that we might have about jail or what the sheriff might tell us about what's happening in jail uh, by creating platforms for incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people to really tell their stories about uh, what jail and electronic monitoring are doing to harm their lives and family. So I think, you know, organizations like this, and there are a number of of different kinds of community organizations and legal organizations doing this work in Chicago. I think their emphasis on getting people free and making sure that they're treated with dignity and respect as they move through the system is ambitious and inspiring and often important for countering the kind of narratives that are coming out of the institution, you know, which administrators might try to project a kind of, that there's like a mission accomplished for reform, that there's nothing left to improve, you know, so kind of really continuing to keep the pressure on the jail to be accountable to the community, um, I think is something that's happening in Chicago that's a great model for other places. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, 
Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.